Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, and welcome to this week's Explaining History podcast. And this week, I want to talk a little bit about 19th century Russian terrorism, anarchism, and the Russian intelligentsia. Now, I'd previously done a podcast in January about Russia's middle classes during the reigns of Alexander II and Alexander III, and to some extent Nicholas II, and how they were excluded from the political life of the nation very much, and they were excluded from roles within the civil service, because this was, for the most part, dominated by Russia's nobility. The Tsar uh, Alexander II rather unnecessarily made a rod for the autocracy's back by cracking down on university campuses and making the lives of students very difficult and pushing a certain number of them towards more radical solutions. And this was a mistake that was perpetuated by Alexander III and Nicholas II. Lenin himself could see that the moment that a generation of radical intelligentsia were drawn into the system, were given good government jobs, and their evidently uh, immense abilities and intelligence were put towards supporting the state, that any chance of a revolution in Russia would be gone. And so he was particularly keen to bring about a revolution before the, the penny dropped with the autocracy or the provisional government thereafter. So the question um, begs itself, how did a generation that wasn't necessarily predisposed to violence uh, begin to adopt assassinations as a way of expressing itself? There, in order to answer that, we really have to delve back into the wider European revolutionary movement in the latter half of the 19th century. The 19th century was a century of revolution across Europe, um, if we look, as Eric Hobsbawm does, at there being a long 19th century, really starting in 1789 and ending in 1914, throughout its entire period from the French Revolution onwards, there's consistent uprisings. In the first half of the century, we can make a broad definition, the majority of those were nationalist uprisings, and the dominant radical ideology of the day was liberal nationalism. Countries like Italy, Hungary and Poland all had powerful nationalist movements and all wanted the old powers who had won at the end of the Napoleonic Wars and created the Congress uh, system at the Congress of Vienna. They wanted them off their backs so that they could form nation-states of their own 
which uh, were largely based uh, around uh, liberal ideas uh, that could be uh, echoed from the American Revolution. In 1848, these revolutions fail, and the autocracies of Prussia, Russia, and Austria particularly, but also other powers in Europe, um, institute a, a powerful backlash, and the uh, dreams of an entire generation of revolutionaries are crushed. I think 1848 sees, in many regards, a shift to the right in uh, the the thinking of nationalists across Europe. Nation-states will not be formed through liberalism and uh, revolutionary activity and uh, an optimistic view of humanity, but will be formed, as Bismarck put it, through blood and iron. Long before the advent of Marx, there had been uh, a more left-wing and a, a more radical revolutionary movement based around in much of Western Europe uh, around the industrial working class and in Russia around the peasantry. Marx was yet to be translated into Russian by the time that revolutionaries were, well not revolutionaries, but student intelligentsia was shifting away from the uh, old ideas of activism that they had been uh, pursuing since the 1870s and towards a more violent plot of assassination. Initially, the emancipation of the peasants and the mistakes that were made with that provided fertile ground for men such as Alexander Herzen and Nikolai Chernyshevsky to formulate a kind of agrarian populism. By that, really, they were looking to the peasants to form the mainstay of the future revolution in Russia. They believed that the peasants had the uh, wherewithal to overthrow the Tsar. They just simply needed almost to be awoken. They needed to be, have it explained to them, essentially, the nature of their exploitation. Many of these populists, um, who were called the Narodniks, Narod meaning the people, uh, decided that it was better to try to get a peasant revolution to happen sooner rather than later in Russia because Russia stood um, the danger of actually developing capitalism. The Narodniks, along with the Tsar and the Slavophiles that surrounded the Tsar, were equally opposed to the kind of um, Western European industrial revolution and all its ugliness in, and all its um, social inequality and divisiveness that could be seen in places like Britain and Germany. They were opposed to that developing in Russia because they had a romantic sense of what Russianness was and it certainly wasn't that, in their opinion, if they could have this agrarian peasant society, but one that was fair and evenly shared and that existed without a czar and hopefully without any central government at all that could be an, an anarchic society where there was no one uh, hegemonic uh, power block that could oppress and that people democratically uh, shared the land 
there was already, in their eyes, a very, very powerful precedent for this. And it was the peasant mir, the peasant collective, or the, the obshina in the village, which decided a very equitable, and so much so that it impressed Marx when he heard of it, a very equitable division of land and property that made sure that uh, the peasants were given land based on their need, not on their riches. The great disaster comes in the 1870s when students, Narodnik students, visit the countryside. They decide they're going to live with the peasants and learn the peasants' ways. And they're going to uh, gradually, as they work in peasant communes and peasant villages, they're going to try to inculcate them with a sense of, of revolutionary ardour. They're going to explain to them that the Tsar is exploiting them, that religion keeps them stupid, and that they need to uh, read Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done, and by doing that, then they will understand what's going on and rise up and get rid of the Tsar. Obviously, this is naive, wishful thinking on the part of the peasants. When they actually get to... Oh, I beg your pardon, on the part of the students. When they get to the peasant villages, they realise the peasant villages are not the nice places they assume they would be. They're exceedingly violent. A great deal of violence directed against women, which shocks and appalls them. There's a great deal of drunkenness. The, uh, the, very often in the collective, the mir is dominated by village elders who are extremely reactionary, who uh, don't like new ideas coming from outside, that feel threatened by them and feel their power within the village questioned. They find that the uh, Tsar's secret police, the third section, later renamed the Okrana, um, have infiltrated peasant villages very successfully and are on the lookout for troublemakers. And for uh, a few rubles, the peasants will inform upon the students and um, they will be happy to hand them over to the Tsar's secret police. So the entire campaign is, is a disaster, it's a catastrophe, and it's a seminal moment in the revolutionary history of Russia, because, firstly, it informs the Narodniks that the only thing that they can do um, to jolt the peasants out of their apathy, to jolt them out of their slumber, is to act in terroristic ways. And a later generation of revolutionaries, the likes of Lenin, who really are finding their revolutionary consciousness in the 1890s and beginning to um, actively work towards the revolution from the turn of the century onwards, they look at what the peasants did and develop a profound mistrust for them. They believe it, it informs the later generation of revolutionaries that, as Marx argued, the future lies with the industrial workers, not with the peasants. And the peasants really, if anything, can't be trusted because they're so poorly educated and backward not to collaborate and to collude with the Tsar when the opportunity presents itself. So these kind of children, in the eyes of many of the kind of the, the bourgeois metropolitan revolutionaries uh, who have been educated probably in quite, a, quite an expensive way, these kind of children need to be almost wards of state when the revolution happens and need to be educated, and I, I say that in the broadest sense, ed, by education, 
I think Lenin had some quite violent things in mind, to be educated in revolution and battered into it if they are resistant. So in many ways, some of the savage treatment of Russia's peasants at the hands of the Soviet regime in the 1920s and 30s almost has its roots back in the late 19th century when the peasants give this example to uh, the, the revolutionary movement and later to the Bolsheviks of, of what they are potentially capable of. The first truly successful terrorist movement in Russia was Narodnaya Volya, or the People's Will. And the People's Will um, comes directly from the failure of the To the People campaign. The brutalization of the people who were arrested and the desperation of others who believe that no change is possible in Russia lead to a, a, a very small group of radicals who become convinced that uh, the only way to bring about change is to act through terroristic means. And one of the ideas that they uh, embraced was this idea of propaganda through deed, that instead of handing out flyers, making speeches, or putting up posters, which would obviously get you arrested by the third section anyway, simply do things. Kill. Show the regime that, A, that you are ready to fight and to kill, and to show the peasants that you are ready to fight and kill and assassinate too. The belief was, and I think it's a mistaken one, uh, that this would, on some level, jolt the peasants out of their apathy. There's no real joined-up thinking. There's no real evidence that this would work. And obviously it doesn't do. By and large, the peasants are horrified when they hear that Alexander II has been assassinated. It was also important for the people's will to kill Alexander II when they do because he was on the verge of signing a draft constitution into law and had there been a draft constitution introduced into Russia it still wouldn't have been the most democratic thing that existed in Europe at the time but it would have been a significant step forward to Russia overcoming her difficulties with modernity and modernization and actually being able to create some some semblance of a stable future for the country and that draft constitution i believe would have drained a great deal of energy out of the revolutionary movement the fear on the part of the students and the intelligentsia who were in the people's will was that ultimately this would lead to the establishment of a bourgeois Russia. An autocracy would be gradually replaced, as it had been across Europe throughout the 19th century, by a more middle-class parliamentary Russia. The Duma would somehow become a lot more effective and you would see a process happening in Russia that had perhaps happened in Britain in 1832, with of course the 1832 Reform Act. And if this happened, then the utopian world that the revolutionaries sought to create, one based around a, a people's revolution and the um, 
sharing of all wealth and property thereafter, that would not materialise and what would happen would be a kind of a Dickensian Russia, a, a Russia based around industrialization, a Russia based around a powerful middle class and an exploited working class. And this, I mean, this does happen anyway, regardless of the fact that Alexander II is assassinated and Alexander III comes to power and then institutes a huge crackdown and an end to really any of the modernization of Alexander II. I mean, this Russia does emerge through Alexander III, but it becomes far is far less stable and established. Um, and this is why, really, uh, from the emancipation of 1861 through to the revolution of 1917, we can, we can look at it as actually being a revolutionary period. I think the terms by which we tend to look at the Russian Revolution are incredibly limited. We limit it to um, looking at the crises of World War I and then 1917 and thereafter. I think that there is a revolutionary period that begins in the 1860s, and I believe it's the botched emancipation that really creates the kind of the climate for revolutionary change from then on. Of course, the, the people's will in 1881, after they've killed Alexander II, are all fairly quickly captured and arrested. But this doesn't necessarily reter deter the group from carrying on in their uh, wave of assassination attempts. There are several attempts on the life of Alexander III, including blowing up the railway on which his train is travelling. And one of those um, caught, arrested and later executed, though his role in the plots is fairly minimal, was Alexander Ulyanov, brother of Vladimir Ulyanov, better known as Lenin. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to read more about this, you can get my ebook, Russia's Struggle with Modernity. You can find it at www.explaininghistory.com. We've got a new title coming out fairly shortly, Revolution, Reaction and the Birth of Nazism, Germany, 1918-23. to Make sure you check that out. Great new title. And also make sure if you go to the website, get on our mailing list and it'll keep you updated with all the things we've got going on. We've got loads of stuff to put out in the near future um, and lots of stuff I want to involve you guys in. So get on the mailing list and keep up to date and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History Podcast. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic Podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave, no, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.